some interesting uh, things going on in that passage. And uh, just want us to, to take a look at that this morning, just trying to picture what was going on in that passage. In, in, in the end of Luke's Gospel, uh, in Luke chapter 24, there's a very brief reference to the same thing that, that's going on here. <coughs> After the, the, the ascension, really two verses, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. I just wonder what was going on for those disciples, those first followers, as they left that amazing event of the ascension, where heaven and earth touched together, but where they saw Jesus bodily ascend into heaven. What was going on in their head? It's a shame that Eric Richardson isn't here today. He's off sailing with his daughter and uh, he was hoping that they were going to sail around the south coast, but apparently the wind's going to blow them across to France. Who knows? But anyway, that's an aside. Um, Eric was quite excited about the cup final yesterday, being from the northwest, and he was kind of rooting for Wigan, who won the FA Cup final, if you didn't know. Wigan, really at the bottom of the Premier Division in football, struggling for survival against the second-place team in, in, in the country. They were the underdogs. But yesterday, they won. Yes, I was so pleased about that. But Wigan Athletic, they must have a really mixed kind of feeling going on in their heads because yesterday, they won the cup final, one of football's biggest kind of events. How wonderful was that? But on Tuesday night, they've got to fight for their lives to stay in the Premiership. No sooner have they had the elation and the wonderful kind of feeling of, yes, we've done it, we won the FA Cup, first trophy in the club's history. And then they've got to come straight back down to earth and get on with it. Apparently they were going to celebrate with Iron Brew yesterday. Good, good old Scottish drink made from garters and not a hint of alcohol because they've got a job to do. And I wonder if the disciples were a little bit like that, elated and just like, yes! Oh, gosh. Got to get on with the job now. A real kind of contrast for them. See, Jesus entrusted the continued spread of the good news to this band of unschooled, ordinary people just like you and me. The only difference between you and them is that they'd actually had the privilege of seeing face to face Jesus walk this earth, speak and teach and minister and heal and cast out demons and then die. But rise from the dead and rise into heaven. That's the only difference between them and us. They were ordinary people that Jesus had entrusted the spread of the good news of the kingdom of God. In this passage, we see Peter kind of take up his personal commission where Jesus had forgiven him and said, Peter, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. And also begin the wider commission that was given to the disciples to go into all the earth. And here we see an important transition that continues to establish the credentials 
of this fledgling church. Not really quite yet a church. Because actually they're still just holding on together. It's not until we celebrate Pentecost next week that we see that the church was born because then the church was able to go out. Because any church that stays together and just does its own thing and keeps itself to itself ain't really church because it's got to go out. And so here we've got an important period of transition. Now there are some that have wondered, well, this was bizarre. Wasn't it all just a bit rash, kind of like filling in uh, one of the apostles with, with, with somebody else? Wasn't that just a bit of a mistake? Shouldn't we have just waited for Paul to come along and then he could have been one of the apostles? That's what a lot of people have asked of this passage. But actually, if you think about it, Paul hadn't even begun to persecute the Christians, so he was in no place to be selected yet. And here, we'll see a community that are seeking to establish what Jesus had set them to do. It's a very delicate moment in the establishment of the church. And Luke, in his Gospel, really seeks to try and help establish the credentials of the church in its fledgling state. It's a little bit like this point in time. It's a little bit like I went to a, um, the, the plant sale for the, the, the church next door yesterday. They have a great plant sale every year and loads of people come. They do all sorts of different things. But, but often people have propagated plants, taken cuttings from plants and, and tended them and grown them on. And here I've got two little hydrangea plants that have been propagated from a clever man's garden up the road. And over the last year, they've been cut, they've been placed, they've been watered, they've been cared for, they've been given the right environment in order to take root so that one day soon, there'll be roots come through the bottom and I'll know that I can then plant them out. And I think there's something like that going on in the life of the fledgling church here where they just need to take care and seek to follow Jesus' commands very carefully. So I'd like us this morning to do, to do just a couple of things. I'd like us to look at this community that was establishing, that was gathering in Jerusalem. And I'd like us to look at what they did. Because actually the propagation of the kingdom of God had been entrusted to them. And they were seeking to create the right conditions for the church to take root. If you look at verses 13 to 15, you see it describes the community out of which the church was born when the Holy Spirit came. You see them returning to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. You see them gathering and they're named. The, dip- the, the, apostles, the disciples are named, 11 of them along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Then, verse 15, about 120 others. Just a point to note there that Luke is very careful to say, well, there was 120 others. In Jewish tradition, 120 was a key number to say there is a viable community being established. And here... 
there is a new community being established, the first followers of Jesus. Although Jesus appeared to over 500 in his resurrection body, there was a community gathered here of 120 that Luke was kind of saying, look, this is to be taken seriously. This is important, what is going on here. So I wonder, let's just take a few moments just to look at what the the characteristics of that community were, who were this fledgling body of people. I've got five things that that kind of characterise the community, run through them ever so quickly. Most of them, I think, are fairly obvious, but it was a community who knew Jesus. Not just intellectually, not just they knew about him as a person, as we might know about our, our favourite TV stars or our favourite sports stars or, or our favourite um, chef or what have you, that we know about them. These people knew Jesus. And they had chosen to allow their lives to be directed and transformed by him. So it wasn't just intellectual, it was relationship. They had a relationship with him and they wanted that to continue. Whatever the cost, they wanted more of him in their lives because they saw who he was, what he had done that was world-changing and they had been invited to join with him. They knew him. So it was a community that knew Jesus, but it was a community that knew that Jesus was alive. They knew that he had conquered death. The ultimate enemy, let's face it, of all of us, is the number one 100% statistic, isn't it? We're all going to die. But Jesus had conquered death, and they knew he was alive. He had died for the forgiveness of their sins, but he had risen from the dead and he was alive and promised them life too these were people who knew the love of Jesus the one who had come to die for their stubbornness for their selfishness for their greed for their lust for all that they determined to do on their own He'd come to die for them and had risen for them. So they knew Jesus. They knew he was alive. But they also knew about the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God that Jesus had spoken about when he'd ministered on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, that kind of manifesto of the kingdom of God. They knew that what he spoke about wasn't the standard and the way that the earth operated. But it was turning so much on its head. Love your enemies. If somebody asks you to to carry something, carry it an extra mile. If somebody asks you for a tunic, take off your other tunic too and give it to them. Jesus was turning so much on its head as he taught them about the kingdom of God. And they knew that. 
Jesus had spent, if you see at the beginning of Acts, 40 days after his resurrection, talking about the kingdom of God, where God would reign over his earth and show his standards and show his provision in ways that just goes counter to so much of what we expect the world to do. They knew about the kingdom of God and they knew that they were invited to be a part of that. It was a community, as we saw last week, who knew that the ascension was real. It wasn't imagined. It was something that physically happened, that Jesus physically was raised from this earth to a place in heaven that is physically there. And he is there, preparing a place for all who follow him. And he is there, interceding for us, rooting for us, standing along the side of the race saying, come on, you can do it, Wendy. You can do it, Paul. You can do it, Val. Keep going. You can do it, Ray. Jesus is interceding for us, rooting for us. And they knew that he had gone to heaven to do that. And fifthly, it was a community that knew that history would end when Jesus came again. And they were excited about it. They were waiting for Jesus to come again in all his glory. Even in those early days, they'd, they'd heard it from the angels and they were expecting it. So here was a community who knew Jesus, who knew he was alive, who knew of the kingdom of God, who knew that the ascension was real and heaven was real and that Jesus would return. I wonder how many of those things are true and active in the lives, or in our lives, in the lives of this community in our corporate thinking and being? Do we know that Jesus loves us? Or do we just assent intellectually that yes, that must be right? Do we know that? Do we know that he's alive, he's conquered death, and he reigns in heaven? Do we know that he wants us to be agents of the kingdom of God here and now? Do we know and expect that he will return? I wonder, what of those aspects of this community are pumping in the hearts of our community here at Fivehead Baptist Church? So that's the community that, that, that has been entrusted with the propagation of the kingdom of God, of tending it and beginning to develop it. And they find themselves in a little bit of a crisis. Because they all know what Judas did. They were all horrified. Right back at the Last Supper, surely not I, surely nobody around this table would do the dirty on Jesus. And Judas comes in the garden. And betrays Jesus. They must have been smarting from that. They must have been thinking, how could he? 
How could that have happened? Think about when you have felt let down. Where somebody you thought you could rely on has pretty much poked you in the eyes. Given you a right kick because they've let you down. Remember, these were human beings and they would have felt all sorts of things as they saw what Judas did. And so they had to respond to that. They had to to, to resolve that in their own community. What do we see happening in these verses as they seek to resolve what went on that very, very painful Good Friday? I think we see two things going on. First of all, we see that that community obeyed. And secondly, we see that that community prayed. I'd just like us to have a look at those two things briefly. That the community obeyed and the community prayed as they sought to carefully propagate the kingdom of God to establish its roots and enable it to spread in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. First of all, they obeyed. I don't know about you, whether you can remember learning to do something that's new, that's different. When I was about 21, I lived in France for a year and I had the privilege of living near the Alps. And uh, part of my really tough existence was I was able to go skiing every week. And that was great. On a Saturday, get up early, go skiing. But I'd never skied before. So first time I turned up on this mountain with these great huge long planks of very smooth plastic with waxy kind of covering that actually were meant to be slippery. I thought, what am I going to do? And thankfully I had an instructor. Because actually, as soon as I put them on, hey, I was over. But the instructor, bit by bit, took me to what I thought was like a vertical incline. It was probably more like that. You know, it was just, just a gentle, gentle incline. And he said, what you've got to do to start with is kind of point the skis so that they point together at the front. It's called a snow plough. And it kind of just puts resistance against the hill. And as you kind of take the resistance off, so you begin to move. And as you put the resistance back on, so you can control what you're doing. And you kind of look, as I do now, like a bit of a muppet as you're kind of skiing with this snowplow position. But actually, if you ignore it and you just let it go, the next tree will be your break. Because you will just keep going until something stops you. I suppose you might break by hitting into somebody else. But I need it to listen and to obey my instructor. And bit by bit, I got that bit, and I was able to straighten up my skis and learn that there were metal bits down the sides of the skis that were edges that could help you to turn and help you to stop. But I always had to remember the basics. I always had to remember what to do as my instructor showed me. Because actually, if I ignored that, then I'd have ended up with a face full of snow, which I did on many occasions. 
and occasionally a bit worse. Some really lovely trees in the Alps that you can get quite close to when you learn to ski. But I had to obey my instructor. I had to follow his commands. And I had to follow them pretty closely to start with. And here, Jesus is very explicit. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. Do not leave Jerusalem, he said to them, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. Stay put, he said. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And so verse 12, what do they do? They return to Jerusalem. They go upstairs to the room. Luke records that they go to the temple to praise and to worship, but they wait in Jerusalem. This band of people, many of whom were from, what, 80 miles away? Up to the north in Galilee? They could have scattered. They could have just gone back to what they had been about. But they obeyed. They heard what Jesus said. And they did what Jesus said. They waited. They kept their focus on Jesus. Then in verse 15 we see something else. I've alluded to already that Peter obeyed even more specifically. Peter the hothead who said, I'll never betray you. I'll never, not betray you, I'll never deny you. And then he goes ahead and denies Jesus three times. But then in in John's Gospel, that beautiful restoration and commission of one who had let Jesus down. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? You know that I love you. Then feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter was commissioned to look after the fledgling church. And here, he obeys Jesus. He begins to develop as a leader. Something that was so important in the church that emerged, that there were leaders, there were people to whom the church could look to. And what he does in these following moments is he tries to make sense of Scripture. He tries to make sense of what's gone on and he tries to help the rest of them through this bizarre thing where Judas betrayed them and he sees in Scripture in the Psalms that okay, this is what happened. And actually God was big enough to know it was going to happen. And he guides them to a place where they recognise that they needed a new apostle. Interesting, that that concept of the apostles. There were maybe 15 apostles. There was the the 11 that were left, the 11 disciples. Then there was Matthias who was chosen. Then Paul becomes an apostle. And then maybe there's one or two others who fit into that category of apostle. But Peter diligently tries to lead them through And show that actually in these early days, the church needs people who have seen the risen Jesus. Who had seen him before he died. Who had walked with him and served him. And so Peter is incredibly obedient to Jesus and to scripture. 
And actually then the rest of the people obeyed Peter. They recognised his leadership. And so there was something very important and very healthy going on. As that early church community learned to obey. Learned to obey and follow Jesus' guide and leadership. Learned to follow Peter's leadership and learned to be guided by Scripture. I wonder, in a a society that we live in that, that doesn't really take to authority very well, very comfortably, how comfortable are we with this model that's emerging of obedience to Jesus, obedience to Scripture, and obedience to those that are called to lead so that the kingdom may be propagated, so that the kingdom may come in this place. But that's what the community was doing. It obeyed. But not only did they obey, but they prayed, last of all. And they prayed in all sorts of ways. I read that little bit from the very end of Luke 24. They prayed in, in, in praise to, to God. They thanked him for who he was and what he had done. As they went to the temple, they praised him. They acknowledged who he was. In the midst of their fears, in the midst of their uncertainty, in the midst of all that was going on, they acknowledged the sovereignty of God and they praised. But not only did they praise, but they prayed with constancy. You look in verse 14. They joined together constantly in prayer. Here was a people that weren't just kind of using prayer as something that they do as part of their religious routine, maybe even just on a Sunday, but they prayed constantly. They kept putting Jesus at the centre of their lives. They kept saying, I want to know more of Jesus. I want to know that what we're doing is what he would want us to do. And so they constantly prayed. But what happened to our other relationships if we just talked to them once a week? Or when we needed something doing? What would happen? Those relationships would become strained and distant. But actually, any close relationship we have, we talk and we listen and we talk and we listen and we talk and we listen constantly, constantly. And that's what we need to be doing in our relationship with Jesus, talking constantly and listening constantly. But that prayer wasn't just constant, but it was united with others, looking to God and relying on him. And that tells us something about prayer, that it's not about us asking God for our personal concerns to be sorted, but actually for us seeking God what he wants and laying aside our personal preferences but saying God what is it that you want and how might I fit in to what you want that's the way that we need to come to prayer so that we might be united because if we all do it in our own way and our own agendas then it's always going to be about me 
about my wants, my desires. Then verse 24, we see again that they pray. They've taken from from Peter some common sense. They've heard him say, well, we need another apostle, somebody that has seen Jesus, has walked with Jesus from the very beginning, who's been a witness to his resurrection. And out of that, that kind of qualification that they listened to, there were two people in that band of 120. Two people that fitted into that mould. And I'm guessing that they probably were pretty much similar. There wasn't anything to tell between them in terms of their character, in terms of their competence, in terms of their, their heart. And so they said, well, God, it's over to you. Lord, you need to deal with this, please. Now, it seems to me, it seems to us that that drawing lots is a bit of a bizarre thing to do. A bit random. But actually, in Hebrew tradition, that was not an uncommon way of making decisions. Having prayerfully and and carefully got to a certain place, there there was a putting of, of, of names on stones and putting them in a bag and lifting them out. So it might seem a little bit odd to us, but what I think we need to take from this is that they submitted themselves to God. It's not a way that seems to to, to carry on through the New Testament of, of, of making decisions, but here they submitted themselves to God and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen. And so they abandoned themselves to God's will. I wonder, how often do we seek to inform God what it is that he should be doing? So, and by the way, Lord, I just think that you probably ought to be aware of this, please. Yes, Lord, I think you could just do with making a little bit of progress over here in my life, please. How often do we approach God like that, where we tell him what he ought to be doing? Instead of saying, Lord, please do what you will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you hear those words that we pray, that Jesus taught us to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we have a community that's put itself in a place where God could work. They knew Jesus, they obeyed and they prayed. I wonder this morning, is there one of those areas that you need to give attention to in particular? Maybe in knowing Jesus. Maybe in renewing your relationship with him. Maybe in coming to him for the first time and saying, actually, I need you, Jesus, in my life. And I want to orientate my life around you. I don't deserve it. I don't come up to any kind of measure. But I know that by your goodness, by what you have done, your initiative, I need to follow you. Maybe there's things that you need to be obeying Jesus in. Maybe there are things that you know in your life that you need to be doing that would be honouring to God. But they're difficult. Maybe it's about praying. Maybe it's about 
renewing a constancy in prayer. Maybe it's about reviewing, well, what is it that I do when I pray? Do I just give him a list and tell him what to do? Or do I open myself up? How might you allow God to empower you? Will you submit your life, your agendas, your plans into his authority today? Just as this community at that moment in time did.